This is a becoming creature. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with the based and law-pilled Scott Hansen. Scott is a professor of law and ethics, an IT pro, a cellist, an amateur author, a game developer, poet, and a freelance occultist. Scott, welcome. Thank you very much. So your ad is Lithros. Forgive my culinary ignorance, but what is a Lithros? Well, it's uh, not really anything you can eat. That is a word that I made up. Um, and I was, you know, when I was in fifth grade, my mom signed us up for America Online. And uh, <laughs> me and my two siblings, she created screen names for all of us. And <laughs> the screen name that she created for me, I still use as my email address. But it doesn't really sound cool. Um, it's kind of a combination of initials and my first name and a, a pet name she had for me. So when I, you know, came into my own around 16 years of age, I decided it was time I, uh, put out my own stake in the world and identify myself proactively and not just continue coasting on the identity my mom had given me. Um. And I just thought about it and I was like, this sounds cool. Um, I didn't really look into the meaning of it or anything. I just thought Lithros was a cool name and actually when i picked it i pronounced it as lithros but everyone who has ever read it read it as lithros out of the gate and i just basically adopted that pronunciation because it makes a lot more sense at one point i uh, took an online class a, a beginner's latin class just for fun and the professor was a you know professor of classics at some university in philadelphia and she saw the name and she was like, wow, that's so cool. That That's like, a, sounds like a real Greek word, but I know it's not. Um, so the inspiration for it, I guess, is kind of like, you know, lith, stone, monolith, that kind right, of thing. Right. And that is what I must have heard and adopted into Lithros. But it has no meaning. The meaning is I have good taste in screen names. So, Scott, I believe we both know that you are married to my mutual, the beautiful and excellent Dancing Horse 16, who recently gave birth to your second child, a boy whose name is, as far as I know, Little Lithros. <laughs> First of all, it is my pleasure to have the chance to say congratulations to the two of you. Thank you. And Maybe Gray asks, do you have any advice to share with other people about to start a family? Yes. I, well, about to start a family, I mean, assuming you've already made the decision to have a child, then right. my advice is that um, the first few months are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and the there's the loss of sleep, right? That's obviously the worst thing. When you are used to sleeping on your own schedule, and suddenly you begin sleeping on someone else's schedule, it's very hard to make up for it. Um, depending on the the country you live in or your company's parental leave policies, it's it's harder or easier, right? Um, the parental leave policy at my work when I had my first child was not as generous. Uh, so I only took two weeks off. Mm. And when I went back to work, it was just terrible because the baby's waking up all night. I have to go to work all day and dividing up the responsibilities was hellish. 
um, this time around, my work has updated their leave policy, and now I got eight weeks, right? Nice. Um, I'm only using six of them because I'm still an American and I have to go to work. It's like a, a compulsion. But right. um, the the difference is night and day, and being able to take a nap in the middle of the day to make up for the sleep you lost is just, uh, it's essential, I think, while you're still figuring everything out. And so be prepared for it to be horrible in that regard. There's nothing anyone can really do to make up for that. My feeling is that, you know, humans were meant to raise their children in a much more communal setting. And there are supposed to be two dozen other people nearby to help you take care of that child over the course of the day Mm -hmm. and night. And um, the the whole model of a couple taking care of a new baby in a house by themselves, while totally doable, is just not what's comfortable for our species. So uh, aside from that, you know, it's for the man or or at least the non-birthing partner, you know, the non-primary caretaker, mm-hmm. the essential thing that I learned, and it was a hard lesson to learn, was that you need to you know, of course you need to listen like any relationship. Open communication is the most important thing, but you don't need to just listen. You need to like proactively pay really close attention. There's so many expectations and, uh, you know, uh, insecurities wrapped up in the whole idea of motherhood and anyone who's a parent is affected by these. But I think the hormonal changes that occur to a woman immediately after childbirth and during the breastfeeding process if breastfeeding that's going to extend it i think Mm -hmm. um those create a whole bunch of emotional reactions that nobody could reasonably be prepared for right Um, some of them are really good and positive and wonderful but some of them can easily contribute to extreme stress and pain and even if the the other partner or, or partners are doing their best to be attentive and caring and asking, what do you need? That might mm-hmm. not be enough. You might have to just put your foot down and be like, listen, you're doing a great job. Take a day off. I'm going to watch this kid. Go out, spend some time with your friends or family. Just just be on your own because that constant drain of being the sole uh, life source for a human being is too much for anybody to bear who's never been through it before. The first time is just too stressful for that. So being able and willing to just say, take a day off and and not listen to arguments to the contrary is really important. People might think, oh, you're telling me this because you don't think I can do it. Mm -hmm. And it's like when you get that deep in that mental health situation, you're not really the best judge for what you can and can't do. Right. I mean, every relationship is different. Everyone's going to have to negotiate these problems in their own ways. But that's a major piece of my advice is like, don't just listen. Be prepared to make some demands that you're the, the, the mother or primary caretaker take care of themselves as well. What this is making me think about is that I've been thinking about the value of neuroticism lately. <laughs> and I also think about how a lot of our natural tendencies uh, tend to have some benefit And so when I'm thinking about this, it's like, yeah, there used to be a tribe that gave us more support. However, like the mother still had to breastfeed and and the parents still had to be present, especially the mother. So it makes me wonder if this is a kind of intentional way to increase someone's neuroticism, maybe to be more defensive because the the mother is in a especially fragile state. 
Um, I don't know. I don't really know how to think about it, but it just makes me wonder, like, what's the benefit of this, mm. you know, suffering that, that new parents endure, you know? Yeah, looking for the meaning in suffering is very important. Um, I mean, first of all, to specifically to the breastfeeding point, I think mm -hmm. that probably in a pre-industrial society, pretty much every woman uh, who hadn't gone through menopause was pregnant almost all the time and right. breastfeeding almost all the time. So right. you could really just hand your kid off to anybody and they could feed them. Um, you couldn't give up breastfeeding entirely without going through a lot of discomfort. So um, it's only going to be a temporary break, but I think it was still easily possible. Um, nobody would want to separate from their kid totally. They weren't just throwing them in a pool and saying, these are all my responsibility. Like you still had your kids, I'm sure. But right. as for the the evolutionary benefits of all the misery or the, the social benefits, I mean, it gives you more of an investment in your child. Mm -hmm. um, I went through all of this for you. And uh, it's also... You know, so it's like a sunk cost fallacy, right? Like, <laughs> I've already suffered so much to take care of this kid. Right. And I might as well keep doing it. On top of that, right at the point where things seem like they couldn't be any worse, and this is about the four to six week point um, for a, a new child's lifespan, mm -hmm. um, right at that point is when they start smiling. And like, oh. that might be just what you need to pull you through the darkness and get you past it. And so I think that that there, there's something about our brains, which is um, rigged up so that contrasts are more important, right? And that's not just visual contrast, but emotional contrast. So when you're in this really dark place and you think there's no one out there, no one understands what you're dealing with, you just have this screaming child, and then all of a sudden they give you a smile and it's the first smile of your, their life. Right. You're like, oh. I'm not just keeping this kid alive. Like I can make this kid happy. There's I can bring joy. There. I can yeah. share love. All of a sudden you're, you weren't getting anything back before. Now you are. And mm. maybe that is part of the benefit of being absolutely miserable and in hell for the first six weeks. Yeah. Your wife has said that what she loves about men is their irreverence, wit, humor, and ability to dream up wacky adventures. She said she loves how ahem, men think so differently than she does. How has thinking differently benefited your relationship? And what can others learn about participating in a deep relationship with somebody that has different views? Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting tweet because I read it and I was like, wait a minute, does this just mean me? Does this mean men in general? <laughs> I thought uh, about the other men in her life. <laughs> And I realized that, no, she really does enjoy being friends with men like this who who are ridiculous and extreme. Obviously, that's not necessarily mm. all men, but at least in her circle, um, she was never a girly girl. And she her, her best uh, female friend growing up was, I think, more like that, more irreverent. As for the benefits of... Our, our, for our relationship, like I would say it has all the benefits. Um, she is a very um, cautious person by nature and very nervous about embarking on anything new. Uh, I don't want to say too much about her own hang-ups, about trying new <laughs> things, and, and uh, out her 
<laughs> I don't say I don't think she's an extremely neurotic person, and mm-hmm. I would describe her as an adventurous person to a degree. Mm-hmm. But major life choices and starting new major life chapters have always been a really hard thing for her. On the flip side, I don't really believe in consequences, right? <laughs> um, I at least think that like whatever happens, you can make something good out of it. Right. I've always tried to appeal that to her in the sense that we can make something good out of it because she really enables me to do so much and explore so many things and mm-hmm. try uh, so many exciting new ideas out because she creates this kind of stable foundation for my life. And uh, her doing that and her working really hard to create this comfortable place for me to come back to and recharge is what makes me who I am. Uh, So that contrast between us, that like yin and yang is absolutely invaluable to me, to us. I think there are people who could live a life any which way you want on either of those axes and still be successful and have a really happy time. But for us, at least, we have these contrasting approaches to how to arrange your life and they wind up complementing each other perfectly. But I think the reason they do that is because we share the same core values. And it was the identifying that similarity of values that encouraged me in the first place to pursue a relationship with her. And when it comes to trying to make the decision about if you should start a family or when the right time to start a family is, my advice there would be, it is never the right time to start a family. Um, You can hem and haw and go back and forth and try to figure out when the stars are going to line up. And I know in Maybe's case, that's literal. Uh, But (laughs) the the fact is you're never going to feel fully comfortable if you're the kind of person who even has to ask. Mm -hmm. Um, There are definitely times in your life when it's not the right time to start a family. (laughs) Like if you're homeless or you just got a cancer diagnosis uh, or you lost your job, like those are those are not good times to start a family. But as long as you're not in that state of sudden uh, disruption, and you just have the normal disruptions, you will always have things you still want to do. You will right. always have places you still want to go. You will always still have freedoms. You always have freedoms you still want to exercise. That will always stand between you and biting the bullet and just getting started. Um, and that. My wife and I had a lot of these kinds of conversations when we were Mm -hmm. deciding to have our first kid. It took us a long time. It took her a long time to finally accept that um, she would never be ready. And so we might as well just do it. Uh, Even though when we got married, she said she wanted to have five kids. So, you know, Mm -hmm. a few years can change everything about what you think you want. Uh, Although I think if you ask her now, she will say it was an absolutely excellent choice. And I was right the whole time. (laughs) Well, to add to this, as someone that's single and doesn't know anything about it, uh, which makes me an expert on the internet, uh, I feel like the best thing to do is just like have a deadline of making a decision. Hmm. So like you said, like if there's a lot of problems, it's definitely a bad time, then, you know, put it off into the future a year or two years. But if I want to go to Japan and I don't make a plan to do it or plan to decide to do it, then I'm never going to go to Japan. Heck, I took my 18-month-old daughter to Japan. It was a horrible choice. Don't ever do that. (laughs) (laughs) 
but it doesn't mean you can't go, right? Like you right, could go, right. you will maybe regret going with an 18 month old, but as an example, yeah. yeah um, kid, one kid is not as limiting as people assume. And two adults are more than enough to take care of one child, especially after the, the first hell period. You know, right, once they hit right. three months, they're, they're relatively a breeze and you don't need to worry about it so much. But good luck. I'm sure whatever you decide to do will work out wonderfully because you are a uh, responsible and skillful person, maybe. So I have no concerns about your future. Yeah, same here. Same here. Full support. Anyway. Mark Zuckerberg, Michael Dell, Larry Ellison, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Elon Musk all dropped out of school. And yet, not only did Scott Hansen finish, but he's still there today. The question <laughs> I want to ask is, what does it feel like to lack the courage to quit? So me and quitting have an interesting relationship. If you frame it that way and you tell me I'm quitting, I will probably do it to spite you. <laughs> um, when I was in high school, I was a boy scout and I had been in the scouts since I was, uh, you know, a cub scout the very beginning, like third grade. And uh, I had worked my way up. I was in a leadership role in my troop. I went to all the summer camps. I did all that stuff. So I'm like 17 years old. I'm a life scout. And all that's left is the Eagle Scout. Right. And I had missed one merit badge, which was like the camping merit badge. And it had all these ridiculous requirements. You would expect the camping merit badge to be one of the more stringent ones, right. being that's the main activity you do. Uh, it's not like chess where you show up, play three games of chess and get a sign off from a chess master and you're done. Mm -hmm. You actually have to like do a lot of camping related things right. over a period of time. There was one weekend when they had done some very specific camping stuff that I had not gone on the camping trip that weekend. So I did not have my camping merit badge and there weren't really any more trips scheduled anytime soon. I was talking to the scout master and he was like, you've got to do this, Scott. Like if you don't do this you've wasted your entire time in the scouts. And I was so pissed off that he said that because I felt like I had been having a good time and I had intended to get my Eagle Scout all along. Right. Like that was what you're supposed to do. So I, uh, I basically just walked away then because I was like, if that's how you see it, this entire endeavor was pointless without this kind of arbitrary crowning achievement which is not arbitrary it's really a, an accomplishment mm -hmm. but but to me it seemed like it wasn't so much of an accomplishment that it outweighed the entire duration of my time there i just was like all right that's how you feel i'm done um when you don't frame it in the context of quitting i am incapable of quitting things but i'm also it's a huge effort for me to finish them <laughs> so i have like a dozen half started half finished projects open at any given time the effort for me to get 50 percent to completion of a project is infinitesimal hmm. compared to the effort to get it across that last 50 percent so i'm constantly starting new things hmm. never really wrapping up anything i i will agree with you that i would be in a different point in my life if i threw caution to the wind mm -hmm. and 
jumped out of the plane, as it were. Well, I, have a, I have a question about that, if I can interrupt you. Uh, in Good Work, if you can get it by Jason Brennan, Jason writes, you may be the smartest, most talented, most driven blank major your college has seen in 20 years. Still, when you hit the professor job market, you'll be competing against 1,000 other best blank majors in 20 years from around the world. In the face of this challenge, Scott Hansen put nine hours into Disgaea in the busiest two weeks of his life. So tell me a bit about the difficulty of going from student to law and ethics professor. And tell me a bit about the trauma that inspired you to endure this sadomasochism. Sure. So my story is a very interesting one, uh, career-wise. And I want to set the expectations correctly. So although... You know, I teach law and ethics. I teach it in a business school. I don't teach it in a law school. Hmm. And although I teach law and ethics, I'm not a research professor, right? I'm just an instructor. Hmm. So the actual job market I was up against in getting those jobs was not nearly as competitive as if I had been looking to do legal research at a law school. Right. And in fact, I kind of snuck in the back door. <laughs> um, the... I, I, you know, I went to law school and I had a horrible time in law school as you are meant to. I had to uh, work in law school because although I got married uh, at the end of my first year of law school, my wife was starting out as a public school teacher. And when you're just starting out, those salaries aren't great. So we supplemented things by me having a job. And the job I went with was helping out in the IT department at the law school. And I had done an IT job in college. I had done three other jobs as well. I was very jobby. But the IT one was the one that worked best with my schedule at law school. So I did that. I graduated from law school. After you graduate, you take the bar exam, uh, thus showing that the entire law school process is largely pointless <laughs> uh, because you have to spend the whole summer studying before you take the bar. You have to take extra courses that cost thousands of dollars mm -hmm. that are not given by the law school. It's a whole thing. Anyways, I took the bar. You don't actually get your bar exam results back for like five months. And in that time, you know, in the old days, you would find a firm that liked you, um, ideally one that you had done an internship at, and they would take a gamble on you. They'd be like, you seem good. We think it's very likely you're going to pass the bar exam. We will hire you provisionally. And then when you when you get your bar results, you become a full lawyer at our firm. Uh, now, I started law school in 2008. Mm -hmm. And then there was this little thing that happened, which was the entire economy collapsed. And so when I graduated in 2011, firms were not doing that anymore. Uh, there was no job market. Uh, for law schools. And in particular, the law school I went to happened to have had a major admissions scandal after I enrolled, which caused it to drop precipitously in the rankings. So um, lots of things lined up, which just made it really hard for me to get a law job after I, directly after I graduated. Hmm. I also got an offer from the law school's IT department while I was waiting for my bar results to come in. And they said, the guy who was running the department left. You have been doing a really great job helping out. Do you want to just come in on a temporary basis and keep the lights on? And I said, sure. So uh, while I was there, they offered me a permanent job. And I was planning to keep looking for, you know, law practices and stuff to apply to. But I said, well, I'll, I'll take that for now. None of my friends have jobs at all. 
And uh, they wound up at the law school having to rescind that offer because they had made it without authority and they didn't realize that. It's a very complicated thing. Yeah. And it was very disappointing when they told me I was not going to get the job they offered me, but I didn't really care because I was like, well, I was just waiting to get my bar results back anyway. It doesn't matter. Right. At the same time, um, they were going to cut my hours. So I was like, well, maybe I should just see what else I can get. And uh, the, the business school at the same university was hiring an IT person. So I applied there, got there. Uh, over the years, made friends with all of the business law faculty, and they basically, you know, adopted me as one of their own over time. And they never really looked back at the law school and never really looked back at private practice either. Like, right. I'm perfectly happy just hanging out, knowing about the law and uh, helping business students understand how that affects them and where ethics applies. Right. But it's just such a weird course to take that explaining it all is very circuitous. Yeah. I want to speak a little bit about ethics. You said, whenever I catch up with somebody from my distant past and tell them I teach ethics, the response is invariably you. <laughs> and you said, I am a great ethics professor because I understand that the primary function of ethics is justifying bad acts. Can you tell me about the tension between ethics and virtue? Yeah, I'm glad you paired those two things together because that that first tweet about people being surprised that I teach ethics, right. um, that actually comes from a time in my life before I thought about ethics very hard at all. Mm. Like before I went to college, I didn't really care or know that ethics was a thing. My, my whole viewpoint on the world was like, well, I guess you should uh, try to do what the church suggests and be <laughs> a good person and not sin, right? right? right. And then... Um, it was only going to college and experiencing uh, philosophy and things like that that brought me out of that. But so the people who knew me from early in college and, and before then, um, the, the thing that that harkens back to is what my wife said about men being irreverent, because I was still always extremely irreverent. Mm. And I was willing to say anything to land a joke. Mm. And I got a reputation for being someone who thought nothing was sacred and was willing to make fun of any subject in a way that was very shocking for most people. Mm -hmm. And so that's why largely people viewed me as deeply unethical, although, you know, I wouldn't say I really did anything that was that bad. Right. But who does? Who says that? Right. Everyone right. says they're good. So you yeah. can't trust me. Um, <laughs> so as far as the tension between ethics and virtue goes right now that i teach ethics and think about it constantly i i have formed these opinions why am i teaching people ethics what's the point of ethics like my first real exposure with ethics is a serious subject beyond the purely philosophical but touching on your actual behavior in your daily life was in law school there's a mandatory ethics class in law school mm -hmm. and the ethics class i took the the professor was wonderful i loved that guy but he made it really clear that we're learning the rules so that we follow the rules, right? This has nothing to do with right or wrong. Legal ethics is important and it's promulgated by the American Bar Association and other countries bar people so that people trust lawyers. You know, it's protecting our bread and butter. Hmm. It, there's no moral obligation element to it. That's why they teach you what it's okay to do and not okay to do where the line is. It has nothing to do with right and wrong. It has everything to do with 
making sure people are willing to give lawyers their money. It's kind of like accounting, right? Yeah, they have the same kind of ethics. Like things. follow the rules. Yeah. Um, they are not quite as high-minded about it, right, but right. that probably means they're a little more ethical about it, I would say. <laughs> they're they're not trying to put themselves in a position as guardians of society. And lawyers, it's, it's a complicated subject. You know, there's a lot of different hats that lawyers have to wear in our society. So you kind of want the people making the rules to think they're doing the right thing. But that, that was just a, an eye-opening moment for me. And as I got deeper into studying ethics, I began to understand that the reason people have such an intense reaction to the, the standard ethical dilemmas, um, like the trolley problem, et cetera, is because people really think they know what's right and what's wrong. Hmm. And part of my class, I try to challenge those things, challenge students' moral intuitions, poke holes in them. And people get angry. They get really, really upset when you start doing that. They think you're tricking them. And the reason they think you're tricking them is because they always believed they knew what was right and what was wrong. And as far as I'm concerned, that is right and wrong, believing you know what is right and wrong, right? And you might be mistaken about a point of fact in terms of how something supports someone, right? Mm -hmm. Like you might be taught growing up that air pollution doesn't hurt anyone. And then if you truly believe that and you believe that burning coal 200 feet from someone's house has no impact on the status of their lungs, you can be forgiven for thinking that there's no moral dimension to the choice to burn that coal right there. Right. Uh, but once you have that, knowledge and you correct that fact, everyone in, inherently understands the problem, at least. They might be willing to not worry about it because they value other things more than morality, which is way more common than people understand. Uh, but, uh, you know, I still just think that people aren't buying in fully to their own priorities in most of these cases. So I want to quickly go over these two things that I don't completely understand. And maybe you could explain to me that uh, I asked a question about hubris and you said that um, all knowledge, including knowledge of oneself is hubris. And I'd like you to expand on that. And I would also like you to expand on uh, the way in which ethics is the infrastructure of the soul. As far as knowledge being hubris. Um, now in the context you were making that tweet. Mm -hmm. I understood you to be using the word hubris to mean just like arrogance in general, as opposed to like the tragic flaw of pride. Is that my uh, the right interpretation? Well, I was using it as a, an intentionally nebulous term because that sparks conversation better than, than pinning things down. Well, you succeeded. Um, so <laughs> I was responding on the dimension of arrogance and not necessarily that classical tragic pride. And in terms of knowledge being arrogance, like uh, possession of information, in order to be certain enough that you are correct about that information, you have to maintain a level of arrogance regarding your own certainty, your own epistemology your own perception. Mm. Uh, there are a million points of failure along the path that leads from some atoms moving around in the world to you believing a fact in your brain. In order to 
accept that. I mean, we have to accept that and believe that in order to operate in the world. We can't wander around pretending we don't have any information. So we need to believe information exists. We need to believe that we have knowledge. But the core of that belief is that arrogance in your own perceptions and understanding of the world. So that's why I'm saying even those things you think you know about yourself, those things that are related to your internal experience, those things too are mediated through a network of perceptions, your brain function, Mm -hmm. your memory storage, that any one of those places can get something wrong. And if it does, your knowledge is incorrect. So deciding to proceed anyway on the basis of a fact being true is to me a form of arrogance. And the second question was about um, ethics being the infrastructure of the soul. What does that mean? Well, this kind of connects to an idea I have that all creatures with brains, at least, and maybe even all life, um, performs moral philosophy on a moment-to-moment basis. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that ethics is you know applied moral philosophy and moral philosophy is the process of determining which things have value um so although humans do it with complicated words and very in-depth systems of rules in order to serve those words Mm -hmm. uh, you can look at a deer and in a given moment a deer is making decisions prioritizing the things that it values. Mm. Um, It values its own life. It preserves its life by eating food, by sleeping when it's tired, by running from predators. It values propagating itself. It takes care of its children, at least the mothers do. Um, And if it's sufficiently threatened, it's going to value its own safety over the safety of whatever is attacking it and it may fight back, right? Hmm. So animals are not making these choices consciously. These things are all happening as a result of a combination of their instincts and some learned behaviors. And they don't get to override those choices like we can or we think we can. Hmm. <laughs> um, but they're still making those choices. They're they're prioritizing things. And there is a, a form of cognition happening in a deer when it looks at a thing and it categorizes that thing as a danger or a good place to sleep or something it can eat or a path that can go somewhere. Um, and it gives weights and values to those different things based on its current circumstances. And then it makes a decision about what it wants to do based on those priorities. And I think this process is exactly identical to how humans decide right and wrong in social contexts. So let's connect this back to what you were saying earlier about the primary function of ethics is justifying bad acts. So if ethics is the infrastructure of the soul in order to kind of create meaning in a sense, then why do we use it to justify what you're calling bad acts? Well, if you have an intuitive understanding of right and wrong and you don't need to actually talk about it you can just see something happen and say that's wrong then uh what follows from that is that uh i see a kind of difference in ethics and moral philosophy here Mm -hmm. and ethics is a structure you build to me 
on top of moral philosophy. And ethics helps you do that process of overriding moral philosophy, where someone is able to convince you that the wrongness you perceive is in fact a result mm. of mistake. And there are times when there is a legitimate mistake happening. Um, if you see someone beating another person on the ground and you run over and try to stop them and they say, oh no, we're filming a movie, this is all pretend, you know, that was a mistake. So what you thought you saw that was wrong was not actually wrong. Right. Uh, but there are other times where someone says, hey, I'm going to execute 100,000 people for crimes against the state. And then they convince you that the, the wrongness you sense is a mistake and that these people really need to be put to death for the good of everyone. Uh, then those are situations where that those ethical principles can be turned against moral philosophy and can counteract our better natures and our own sense of right and wrong. And being able to navigate between the two is like the crux of all ethical dilemmas, I think. Mm. Like, am I really confused about right and wrong? Or is someone just pulling one over on me? Is this why you say justice is bad? Essentially, when I say justice is bad, that is a sort of separate conversation mm. about the, this is my opinion of moral philosophy and the uh, the moral philosophy of the question of justice in the sense that encouraging justice as a good to be pursued is going to lead to worse outcomes in the long run for the people pursuing the justice than if we just hadn't worried about it so much or at least left things where they were. Can you go deeper on that? Sure. I have very intense opinions about punishment. I think that almost all punishment is excessive. Mm -hmm. And I think when you emphasize justice as one of your values, what you're really saying is, I think we need to punish more. There are obviously cases where people don't mean punishment. Right. And they mean, I want to uh, you know, enforce people keeping their promises. But ultimately, all justice... All law is the threat of punishment if you don't follow the rules. Obviously, for our large-scale societies to function, where strangers are interacting with each other all the time, right. you desperately need a theoretically objective, impartial judicial system to enforce contracts. Right. If you don't have that, everyone has to just rely on their own wits and ability to get one over on everyone else. Mm -hmm. I don't think you necessarily descend into anarchy immediately, but society works a lot less smoothly and a lot more people will be stuck in poverty if you can't protect the ability of businesses to make money right. by guaranteeing contracts. So that's important. But I think it works really well right now, possibly too well. And so if you come along and you say, we need to increase the level of justice in our society. There's a lot of different meanings of justice mm. on top of this too, but I'm still focusing on the economic, well, contract law guarantees, right? Sure. If you try to increase that dimension, you're really punishing more people for failing to meet their contracts, which I disagree with. People have different definitions of justice outside of this. 
right? People might say justice means everyone has the same opportunity. Everyone has the same outcome. But I think a core harm is that we don't have a clear definition of that word. So when you promote justice in isolation, everyone wants justice. The idea is appealing to everybody, Mm -hmm. but everyone's meaning of it is different. So saying I want justice is just a way of saying I want things to be the way I want them to be. Right. I'm reminded of the 2008 crash and justice would be if everybody's contracts were served and respected. Right. But that would increase the number of foreclosures, et cetera. And even now with the coronavirus, a lot of people became more lenient. And that leniency in and of itself is is kind of an injustice because there's a loser here that wasn't supposed to be the loser on paper. Um mm-hmm. So I, that's the way I'm interpreting everything you're saying, that in the moment that we need to do this improvisational thing where we're considering what's good and justice that's rigid um, ends up doing more bad than kind of this more intuitional improvisational approach. Yeah. Part of the reason I'm having trouble answering this question directly is because I meant like six different things by that tweet. So <laughs> you have gotten one of yeah. them. Uh, which is, you know, we just need to play it a little faster and looser. Uh And then another one is a semantic argument that we should not use such imprecise words as though they are rallying cries, because that winds up hurting everyone. Speaking of badness, uh, you wrote, you carried a tabernacle for your Moloch and the images of your idols. It always comes back to Moloch. What did you mean by this, that it always comes back to Moloch? Oh, okay. That's that's from my biblical live tweeting. So you carrying a tabernacle for your Moloch and the image of your idols, that's actually a quote from Amos. Mm-hmm. Um, I can bring up the book if you'd like me to read an excerpt from it. If it's important to you. Sure, sure. Yes, absolutely. This is a quote from uh, Amos book five, specifically it is uh, well, chapter five, verse 26. Mm-hmm. The entire... Um, section of that part of Amos is titled The Coming Judgment. And it's basically one more biblical chapter verse warning about how horrible the world is going to become. Right. And, you know, this comes up all the time. Um, Specifically, God is telling the Hebrews that he's going to turn away from them and not give them any... uh, recognition for any attempts to make peace with him that mm-hmm. they had their chance they missed it um he he is responding to all this stuff like oh you did all these things for me and here's where the section actually begins did you offer victims and sacrifices to me in the desert for 40 years O house of israel but you carried a tabernacle for your moloch and the image of your idols the star of your god which you made to yourselves And I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord. The God of hosts is his name. All right. So that jumped out at me because Moloch obviously is a big name in the uh, post-rat dialectic. (laughs) And Moloch obviously calls back to this specific thing. Like, it's not a coincidence. Nothing's ever a coincidence. Um, But just to say that, like, the whole point of Moloch in in Scott Alexander's writing is that Moloch is this underlying force that 
destroys the fabric of our society without any real negative intent on any one individual's part. Um, that things just tend to fall apart and get worse because of necessary uh, functions of human society at large scales mm-hmm. and, and at small scales in some cases. But um, you can find someone to blame, but really the fault is just trying to do things in scopes of millions of people. And I like that in this book of the Bible, what's capping off this apocalyptic segment that the world is ending and you tried to do all these good things. You had such good intentions, but you had Moloch with you. And Moloch was the representative of you doing things for yourself. So you will not be saved. We were talking about hubris a little bit and, and arrogance. Um, and I, I see that perspective on hubris. But another perspective on hubris is kind of like this Moloch that we're carrying around that you're talking about, that there's this kind of self feel, um, the self importance that we're carrying around. And if we are doing all these good things, ultimately in a self-serving way, that this is something that leads to spiritual detriment. So since we're touching on this other side of hubris, this other interpretation, do you have anything to add to that? The first thing that comes to mind is, um, you know, we were talking about what's what makes my relationship work mm-hmm. and what makes relationships in general work. This resonates with me, this idea of selflessness and and not trying to do things with your own good in mind right Mm. um even though you know if you go back and replay what i said earlier everyone always does things for their own good in mind you just have different definitions of good right so there's that constant human struggle this came up the other day too i was responding to a tweet from crispy chicken and we were just proposing types of guys as one does and (laughs) I wrote, guy who does something because he wants to seem nice and then collapses into an identity crisis about the nature of goodness. Right. Right. Like there's this tension between doing something because it has a good impact on someone else or the world or it's the right thing to do and doing something because it benefits you. And trying to disentangle that is impossible. Right. But the there's always this this force pulling you back and saying... You're not really doing that because it's the right thing to do. You're just doing it because you value doing the right thing. How do you reconcile that truth that you'll be happier if you do the right thing? So doing the right thing is only a form of serving yourself. Right. This gets to like um, Hansen and uh, Simler's Elephant in the Brain. Uh, where everybody does everything for for status and like the human brain is just an advanced machine that hides our true our true motives from ourselves um but yeah but like we we are constantly interacting in this this fluid the social fluid of not wanting to seem a certain way and everything is appearances we're integrating that into our mind such that it is directly affecting how we feel about the world. And I read something, I forget who wrote it, but I read something recently about, I think it was Visakon maybe wrote about how like to do greatness, you kind of have to first 
be evil or familiarize yourself with evil because only then can you really understand what real goodness is because without understanding what true evil even looks like mm -hmm. um you're gonna be deluding yourself about the virtue of your good actions i fully agree with that and i think that applies in a lot of different ways than just necessarily even being evil but knowing evil and understanding evil are prerequisites for making choices that people will recognize as good in the long run i i strongly believe in that principle and when people talk about um feeling extreme pain about a relatively minor situation mm -hmm. my first reaction is that this problem has this person has probably never encountered true human suffering it, it kind of inoculates you against those petty grievances right it gives you some perspective so i'm gonna take a left turn here and i would like to play a game great i will ask you for one of your favorite things and then you tell me the first thing that pops in your head so it doesn't have to be the number one so no thinking no thinking aloud and then okay. you just tell me why you love it uh so first up is books terry pratchett discworld all right what's great about discworld I will say more than anything else, Discworld is like the cornerstone of my personal uh, ethical framework, whatever exists, mm -hmm. like what I think is good and bad ways to behave in society. Right. And uh, he just, his writing is hilarious, first of all. He's an absolute inspiration. I can read reread books over and over again, and I laugh every time at the jokes. <laughs> there is this mastery of timing mm -hmm. that's kind of like cinematic, but it comes through in the text. And he just has this really deep affection for his characters, even the, the horrible ones and the dumb ones, that he finds the humanity in all of them. Although there are characters who are just bad and like no one is going to redeem them or, or bring them to the side of good, he, he still has that appreciation for their participation in the world. And like the world needs these kinds of people too. Mm. And it really sucks for their victims. So we should have sympathy for them, but we won't have a complete human experience without people who are garbage relative to everyone else. <laughs> uh, on top of that, his works are very philosophical and they have a deep focus on thinking and understanding the problem as opposed to just fighting the problem. So physical force is never really the solution for the heroes. Mm -hmm. um, the solution more often is coming to understand what's motivating the villains, what they really care about, and either resolving that or using that knowledge to overcome them as opposed to just, you know, beating them up. I have a question about this because Eigenrobot wrote about how, like, to really understand human nature and, like, goodness and badness you need to read fiction. And that that always kind of surprised me, especially from Eigenrobot, who, who loves history. Um, <laughs> so why do you think fiction is so good at communicating human nature to individuals? Well, there's actually an entire Terry Pratchett book about this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this is one where some of the characters are actors in a parody of Shake a Shakespeare troupe. Hmm. And uh, it's, you know, it, these books are set in a fantasy world that is 
at kind of a renaissance level of technology. So you could plausibly have them in the same circumstances, traveling from town to town by cart and giving performances at of their play as they go. The The important thing about it is the, the core of having actors and performance in the book is to show that fiction can present things that are more true than the real world can present. Mm-hmm. It can distill a point down to its symbolic essence that the brain can understand and then apply that pattern more universally in the real world than if you presented something as messy as a real situation. Mm. It takes great skill to do that, to pick out those pieces that actually matter in a story and to, yeah, exactly. To distill it and to, to then communicate that distillment back to the reader or viewer or whatever Mm -hmm. in a way that they're going to perfectly understand and then be able to apply later on. And I think that's what Terry Pratchett was a master of. But if you're not getting those kinds of things, you know, in law school, we spent all our time reading cases, studying specific fact patterns that happen in specific cases, and then arguing the minutia of why him standing 10 feet away in this case makes it a completely different circumstance than him standing five feet away in this case. Right. And there's no real core principle except what you can convince a judge to believe. Right. And juries are in there and they're just like trying to figure out what everyone is talking about. Mm-hmm. No one's asking them to make calls on the actual legal issues, but they want to know the story, right? When you, when you go to the jury, you tell them a story. When you go to a judge, you argue the minutiae. And the stories is what really matters and what really explains how people behave. Next up, we are going to do a movie or television show, whichever comes up first. So it, like I have like five in mind right now, and I'm just trying to figure out which one is really the most important to me. All right. So I think Deadwood is my favorite TV show. Um, and actually, it had not come to mind until just now, but it, it, it's my favorite. So Deadwood is my favorite show mm-hmm. of all time. It is an absolutely beautiful artistic achievement. I was despondent when I finished it. I am dearly looking forward to rewatching it. Mm-hmm. I was thrilled when they made a follow-up movie about it. Um, Deadwood is just, it's a lot like Discworld, right? right. And, and you're going to see a trend in that Deadwood, the whole, have you seen it? No, I have not. Yeah. So the whole point of Deadwood is building society. Mm-hmm. That is the theme of that show. And it is about building America specifically, although it's set 100 years after the establishment of America as a country. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a microcosm of building a new society where people need to live in common and argue over scarce resources and deal with their interpersonal conflicts and respond to external threats and grow and learn to love each other and celebrate one another's successes. Mm -hmm. It has every American problem in it. And I think it has almost every human problem in it. And it observes all of these things with this amazing felicity of speech and a, a deep and abiding love for every one of its characters almost, but, and even the villains like, they're fully realized human beings. They might be monsters, right. but they at least justify their behavior to themselves and bother to take the time to think about why they are the way they are. 
the whole show has a character arc in itself. Like the town of Deadwood grows and develops over time, and you can actually trace, uh, you know, personality traits coming out of it in those. It's just an absolutely amazing experience to watch it and to be blown away by the language and the quality of the acting. And like the other shows that I might name as some of my favorites, for example, like The Sopranos, Mad Men. I know this is kind of a basic HBO AMC list here, but um, these shows at least are interested in those questions of how to live in society and what having power means. Deadwood is interested in how where society comes from right so Mm. the problems that those other shows are dealing with are not as fundamental and at the end of the day deadwood is not negative it is optimistic it is joyous it is celebratory um even of ugliness which is not a thing i would have understood how to celebrate before i watched that show okay so i want to touch on some law um maybe gray wrote a while ago, if you go to law school, you learn how gross and vulnerable human civilization is. Laws are bad. States are bad. Governments are bad. It's all a big, gross mess. And you wrote, I don't care about the original intent of the framers at all. The Constitution is a messy document, vague where it isn't tainted by compromise with evil. This is not an argument for returning to the founders' vision. So, Can you talk to me about kind of like the popular perception of law and what it's for? And it's kind of like essentially it's aesthetic compared to how law works in America. I'm just going to build a structure. Sure. All right. I'm going to start at the base. Like you're a kid. You're taught that there are rules and you need to follow the rules because following the rules is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And that starts in the home. The parents are telling you that before you ever go outside, that the you begin your life being taught that there are systems of rules you need to follow. Almost everyone, anyway. There are some people who get raised in a very free spirit style, and right. uh, heaven help them. But as you go into the world, you learn that not only do your parents make the rules, there is also a school that makes the rules, maybe, and then mm-hmm. a government that makes the rules. And there's all these nested layers of rules, and you need to follow all the rules. You soon realize you cannot know all the rules. Um, You might break a rule without knowing it. If you are in a more fair-minded setting, then that will be taken into account, and your punishment won't be as hard. Um, If you are in a less fair place, it won't be, and you will be sentenced just as harshly or punished just as harshly for breaking a rule you had no means of knowing. So you start to see that happen as you go through life and you have more experience and and you just, you know, not just to yourself, but you see other people being affected by rules that are either being applied fairly or not properly communicated. And you start to develop a sense that, all right, so some rules are good, some are bad. We should probably find ways to either undo them, the bad ones, or have some form of civil disobedience against the bad ones. And You know, people disagree on that, but I think it's a reasonable disagreement. You can have this discussion, how to react to a law that is unjust. On top of all of this, you need to, you need to account for all of these people. 
all of these different levels of understanding and appreciation for the law. Because on top of that, you have more sophisticated people who understand the law better and have more resources at their disposal. And they start to find ways they can use the law as a tool and they can use it to benefit themselves or control other people if right. they just press the right lever. And you need to account for those people too. So here's the here's a bit of a deep question. Maybe you have a simple answer for it. But what is the metric of a good law versus a bad law? Like how how do you point to a law and go that's a bad law? That's that depends on what you think the purpose of the law is. Okay. And to me, right, a law at the least should be something that has an effect. So. If you have a law that cannot actually be enforced, I would say that's a bad law. Um, however, if you think the purpose of the law is to oppress people, you might think that a law that can't be enforced is awesome. Right. <laughs> and you might say all the laws should be laws that cannot be enforced, and we should get rid of all the enforceable laws. Mm. Um, if you think that the purpose of the law is to keep society safe and make sure uh, everyone is in line and being responsible to one another, then yeah, an unenforceable law is like the worst possible thing because it diminishes trust in the law and makes people more likely to break the other laws. Maybe that's right. an argument, but it's a reasonable argument. Um, for me, what do I personally believe the law is for? I lean a little more towards the side of enforcing the laws for enforcing the status quo and it's for giving more powerful people in society control over less powerful people. But I don't necessarily think power is the same thing as wealth, right? Um, someone who's taken control of the national conversation at any given point in history and is able to uh, convince the majority in a democracy that their way is the way to go, that's a powerful person. Hmm. In A uh, hundred years ago, women did that. They found the power to pass a constitutional amendment and get themselves the right to vote, which right. was fantastic. But that was an exercise of power, right? They were more powerful than the people who didn't think women should be able to vote at that time, which is not to say that women have more power in general. But in that argument, in that moment, they did have more power. And that had nothing to do with how much money was behind it. Now, 100 years ago is a very different society, but... Uh, since I see law as uh, an extension of the uh, enforcement of the will of the powerful people in society, mm -hmm. uh, my preference for laws would be laws that counteract that to some extent. So I would say that good laws are laws that prevent momentary passions from taking physical effect in the world. <laughs> I'm thinking about this. You wrote that there's a natural tendency in human societies for power to centralize in a way that's harmful to the health of democracies. And I feel like this is connected to what you're saying about shifts in power. So how should we think about this regarding the future of America? Wow. <laughs> as far as the future of America goes, power in America is about as concentrated as it's going to get. And power is concentrated in the hands of the people who are able to control the conversation. And for example, uh, Donald Trump was a lot of different things, is a lot of different things. One thing he is amazing at, probably better than anyone else, is controlling the conversation. 
Right. He can say something and everyone is going to talk about what he just said for three weeks. <laughs> That's power. And when you are able to frame the discussion people are having, they can't do anything about it. Right. They, they have to respond to you or be irrelevant. If you get to choose where the party happens, who cares what the decorations are? You decided where the party is. You made that. So he's obviously not the only person. And since losing his Twitter account, for whatever reason, he hasn't bothered to reinforce that particular skill of his. And I think we're all probably better off for that. <laughs> um, I was recently followed by someone on Twitter with the handle DJT and a black, a completely black profile picture. Mm-hmm. And all they do is retweet political news it's not all about trump but some of it's about trump and i just it's so weird like why would someone do that i guess i i am like 99 percent sure it has nothing to do with the real donald trump right. but someone just wants to make some waves yeah russians do a lot of strange things could be yeah that would make sense um anyways so as far as america generally trump is not the only person who knows how to do that mm-hmm. and in addition to individuals who have superpowers we have uh, large media conglomerates, which have a lot of influence over what people talk about. Right. They are not as active about using those powers as they could be. And I think we're better off for that, too. Um, but the fact that they have that power is kind of this you know, sleeping giant in the room of American politics. The media has always had an effect on American politics, but we're just getting to the point where we get all our news from algorithms and you can use those algorithms to control that conversation. The media and tech companies have been pretty restrained in doing so up till now, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. uh, compared to where it could go. But even if they continue to be restrained, there are opportunities for third parties to roll up and build things on top of those systems that interact with those systems and drive the conversations in particular directions. I wouldn't be surprised if that's already happening, but I think this is the big danger for American democracy right now. Mm -hmm. The more everyone is talking about the same thing, the worse off we are. Mm. We need plurality. We need a hundred different discussions in a hundred different rooms. We need people to be focused on their own thing and not constantly uh, dealing with incentives to argue that their thing is every other thing. Right. You've written about this, um, about how after the 17th Amendment, all politics is national politics. So instead of talking about local issues and this, these nuances and, and differences, and while you agree that the 17th Amendment has been destructive of American politics, you concluded that we're past the point where abandoning it would make any difference. So why even talk about it? Like, like, why are you saying it's important? By the end of that thread, I was running out of steam. So I didn't wrap it up as nicely as I could have. But uh-huh. thank you for giving me the opportunity to do that now. Sure. So what I meant to say was that specifically, if we brought, if we repealed the 17th Amendment, it uh-huh. would not fix the problem. Um, and that is because people would continue to elect their senators popularly. Uh, that's the specific problem I'm referring to that 
got the ball rolling on this, right? Um, people are used to electing their senators popularly. People will be pissed off if you told them they can't do something that they have been able to do for over a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would not understand the explanation because this is our society. They grew up in it. They live in it. What's wrong with it, right? So the question then is, why did I bother writing this thread about the 17th Amendment and the harm it did to America Right. Um, if I think there's not a solution? And while there is no solution to going back to letting state legislatures choose the senators, we can still all actively in our own capacities as individual political entities and groups work towards pulling the focus down from the national level. Mm-hmm. Um, the news markets are responsive to demand. If there were demand for local and state level news, there would be more of a supply of it. We, I don't exactly know the best ways to create incentives around that right now. Like the best I've done so far is to write this thread. Right, right. <laughs> and certain things we're just never going to get back. Like you have to think about it before the 17th Amendment, the state legislatures had a say in who got onto the Supreme Court, right? It kind of blows your mind to think about it, mm-hmm. that it's supposed to be the president appoints, the president nominates, and then the Senate approves them, right? right and right. before the 17th Amendment, that meant the state legislature was saying, oh, this guy, this guy who's going on the Supreme Court, he doesn't care about states' rights. You're not going to approve him. Mm. Not that they really had anybody get rejected from the Supreme Court, until like the 1980s, (laughs) but it was still a possibility, right? The fact was the senators who were approving Supreme Court nominees were responsive to the legislatures of the states. That kind of stuff is gone forever. That check on federal centralization of power is gone. Supreme Court justices will never care about states' rights from a structural or systemic point of view because they have no reason to. But we can still restore that spirit of pluralism. We can restore that side of America where we don't go to the federal government as the solution for all our problems. Hmm. I don't have a particularly strong stance, for example, on uh, Second Amendment rights and gun control legislation. Like I see reasonable arguments in both directions. I lean slightly towards like believing what the Second Amendment clearly is trying to express, even if the specific wording of it is complicated. But, you know, making arguments about wording is the whole point of our entire democratic process. So, (laughs) sure. However, I see huge value in letting individual states make decisions about the gun control questions. And I see great danger in expecting the federal government to be monitoring and controlling that from the top down level because every state for the most part is different and uh, we shouldn't treat it as a one size fits all solution, but that's the kind of way we go when people only pay attention to national politics. Speaking of politics on my previous episode with Teddy Rackvelt, we were talking about how Congress is populated by members of increasing senility. (laughs) And so my last question is, if we have like an aging Congress that is less capable and is is more under the whims of 
their own personal unelected employees, then like, what does this mean for a federal democratic republic? And like, how should we be thinking about these kind of strange dangers to our, our electoral system? Right. So if I'm understanding you right, the danger you're proposing is that uh, an email comes in and the senator's staffer reads it and tries to get the senator's take or doesn't really try or frames the question in a way that's biased. So the senator's response is not what it would have been if they had been more personally involved. And then that staffer is having undue influence on the democratic process. Right. Essentially, what I'm saying is that if we have a Congress that is full of people that are senile or have dementia, then the electoral system isn't really working. No, I think it's working great. <laughs> then, then please expand on, on yeah, like, so. if, if these people aren't actually like, if we're electing these people that are not doing anything connected to their campaign or anything like that, like how is the, the voting even working properly? Right. So the reason I said I think it's working great is because I don't think the purpose of the electoral system is to um, get the best outcomes necessarily. Um, I think the purpose of the electoral system is to elect people who are electable. Right. Mm. And then the democratic process is what gets perverted by what you're describing. So I'm, I'm kind of cutting hairs here. But yeah, lawyer, what are you going to do? <laughs> sure. Um, as for the danger you're describing, first of all, I think you're probably underestimating how calcified our democratic process is at the congressional level, mm -hmm. which, I mean, I personally wish you weren't, but really this idea that like a bill comes across your desk and you either read the bill or you have a staffer read the bill and tell you what the points of the bill are. And then you make a principled decision on where you stand based on what's in the bill is not anything like what happens. Hmm. Um, and really you have in like 95 plus percent of cases, your uh, house or Senate leader, majority leader or minority leader, your party leader tells you how to vote and you vote that way. Hmm. And in some cases, a bill touches on a specific issue or you have an election coming up and this is going to be an issue in the election. So you have an incentive to make a stand on a specific point and you might say, well, you know, my state, the people really love coal miners, so I can't vote for your pollution control bill. And then they have to do some deals and you need to be able to bring something back to your people. But nothing is happening in the sense that someone's brain not working really has any impact on the outcome <laughs> of the process. Their brains aren't engaged at all. And so as far as people getting old and senile, it's a problem as far as it affects the increasing power of the executive branch where Congress just has less interest in dealing with things. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly happening. And that happens because the leadership positions on committees get filled up by these people who are too old to read the letters in front of them. Right. Um, and the energy levels of those committee leaders has a real strong impact on the policy directions Congress takes. So I'm concerned about that. I'm interested in seeing ideas that they have for mixing up the way the committee system works. but as far as we're proposing a person who's like so senile, they can't really understand what's happening in Congress, still managing to win election. Could that happen? 
yes, that could happen. Yeah. But that person is going to be a liability because they might say the wrong thing. They might, you know, they might be in a meeting and then repeat something to the reporters they shouldn't repeat. So the party leadership is going to be really wary of that person as well. If you start to lose it, they're like sharks. They're just going to eat you alive if they smell any blood. I, I'm just saying, I think there are some self-correcting things in the institutions to avoid that being a hugely critical problem that's really undermining American democracy in general. American democracy is very well undermined in a variety of ways already. Uh, <laughs> but but that specific problem of senile Congress, congressional representatives, I'm not that concerned about. All right. Well, I had a great time learn, learning a lot here. And uh, so thanks for coming on, Scott. And I hope you have a good time in Disney World. Thank you. It's going to be wonderful. I can't wait to see it through my daughter's eyes. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be awesome. And congratulations again. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. This was a blast. Well, that was awesome. Loved having Scott on. If you want to read more of his writing, check him out on Lithros, L-I-T-H-R-O-S on Twitter. And he's got a link to his blog there. Thank you to everyone that makes this show possible. And please subscribe and like and comment and reply, etc., etc., on becrumbingcreature.substack.com. I love you all, and I'll see you soon. Hey, my name is Master Tim Blay, and I stand the A Becoming Creature podcast. I don't say this about many things, but it is better than anything. Rejected enlightenment in my desire for this show. Oh no. Listen to it now. Yeah, I feel so. I feel like the hot girl. <laughs> you are. You're the hottest of all of us. I don't know how you mean it, but. Uh, I mean it in every possible way. I mean, oh, every possible way. Nice. I can only interact with you on this uh, Twitter and voice dimension, but so far I have no reason not to think you're the hottest person in the world.